So we next have argument in Dr. Seuss Enterprises v. Comic Mix. You may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor, and good morning, Your Honors. Stanley Panikowski for Appellant, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, the copyright and trademark owner in this case. Boldly is not a fair use of Go because its purpose, character, and effect are to serve as a market substitute for Go and derivatives of Go. Boldly is a purely commercial work that would compete head-to-head with Go, especially in the graduation gift market. May I ask just one procedural question before you continue? The excerpts here are filed under seal. We have both a sealed and an unsealed brief, so I assume that anything that's in the unsealed brief can be used by the court, and I'll ask your colleague the same question. That is correct, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you. Your Honors, the record shows that Boldly has the same purpose, the same target audience, the same intended sales channels, and even the same substantive message as Go. Boldly is just a Star Trek-flavored clone of Go. The publisher, AMP... I'm going to ask you one other procedural question. It's somewhat procedural. Fair use is the affirmative defense in this particular case, right? Correct, Your Honor. And with the use of it as affirmative defense, Comic Mix has the burden on each of the factors that I might apply in determining the fair use as well, do they not? That is correct, Your Honor. Did the district court give them the burden on each of these factors? No, Your Honor. The district court did not place the burden on Comic Mix on every factor. Rather, on the fourth factor, the district court incorrectly placed the burden on DSE to establish market harm. That is inconsistent with the Supreme Court's decision in Campbell, as well as all of this court's fair use precedents. Even apart from that procedural error, Your Honor, as we'll discuss, the record amply shows that the fourth factor strongly favors DSE. And that is because the record is clear that widespread and unrestricted uses like Boldly would harm DSE's actual potential markets for the original and its derivatives, including, as this court said in Motley, both immediate and delayed markets. The publisher, AMP, here actually called Boldly, quote, a Star Trek version of the Dr. Seuss classic, Oh, the Places You'll Go, at excerpts of record 1161. This is part of a legion of evidence showing that Boldly functions as a market substitute for Go and its derivatives. AMP also identified the target audience for Oh, the Places You'll Boldly Go as including, quote, fans of Dr. Seuss, and, quote, graduates and parents of graduates, college, high school, eighth grade. AMP also wanted to rush Boldly to market to, quote, capture some grad biz. That's at excerpts of record 1179. And the district court itself recognized that, quote, it is certainly conceivable that some would-be purchasers of Go would instead purchase Boldly for a Trekkie graduate. Instead, that is market substitution. These facts alone tip the fourth factor, the effect on the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work, decisively in DSE's favor. But there is much more in this case, too, Your Honors. For example, 
The record shows that unrestricted and widespread uses of Go, which the Supreme Court in Campbell said must be considered, would harm DSE's actual and potential markets for Go and its derivatives. As the district court recognized, DSE has a robust market for the licensing of derivatives, including works that, quote, mash up Seuss with other IP rights holders' characters, such as The Wubulous World of Dr. Seuss with Jim Henson or Grinch Panda Pop with Jam City. If the market were flooded by mashups of Go with all sorts of other entertainment properties, Star Wars, Marvel's Avengers, Harry Potter, Oh, the Places You'll Let It Go with Disney's Frozen, Oh, the Places You'll Pokemon Go, Oh, the Places You'll Say Hello Kitty, and so forth, then DSE's market for Go, especially the graduation market, would suffer harm. And these uses would also usurp DSE's opportunities to license derivatives of Go. This is precisely the harm that the Copyright Act was designed to avoid. And the Supreme Court and this court have made clear that one should always keep their eye on the ball of the underlying purposes of copyright in conducting a fair use analysis. And one of those purposes was emphasized by the Supreme Court in Campbell. The Supreme Court said that the licensing of derivatives is an important economic incentive to the creation of originals. And that is in part why the Supreme Court in Campbell, even though it found Two Live Crew's song to be a parody of Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, remanded on the fourth factor so that the lower courts could consider the market for rap derivatives of Roy Orbison's song, something that hadn't been considered. And that is where the Supreme Court made clear that the burden of proof is on the proponent of the fair use. Let me ask you another procedural related question, and that is we've seen more and more that the fair use cases come to this court on appeal without a finding of infringement. And it's presumed for purposes of analyzing the defense. So as I understood Dr. Seuss's position, you would like us to enter judgment if you are correct in favor of Dr. Seuss. But at this point, I don't see that comics has actually conceded infringement, and we don't know what the extent of infringement is, particularly since all we're looking at here is primarily the visual depictions and not the textual content of the proposed work. What is Dr. Seuss's position on that procedural question? Your Honor, DSE's view is that because defendants have not contested on appeal, DSE's assertions in its opening brief that copyright infringement apart from fair use is undisputed, it would be appropriate for the court to order the entry of judgment of copyright infringement. However, Your Honor, I recognize too that it is possible that the court would look at that, and if the court does not believe that there's been a clear concession by defendants, the court may decide to remand on that issue. And given the fact that the issue was not meaningfully disputed on summary judgment and not disputed at all on appeal, even if there were a remand on the issue of the prima facie case of copyright infringement, DSE believes it would be little more than a ministerial act for the court to enter judgment and then to proceed to the remedies phase of the case. 
Your Honors, fully copied extensively from Go to accomplish a purpose that the Supreme Court in Campbell and this court in Penguin Books said is not transformative. And that purpose was to exploit the popularity of Go and to get attention for defendants' own similar work of commercial entertainment. Boldly has no further purpose or different character as required by this court's precedent and the Supreme Court's Campbell decision. Boldly, therefore, does not make a transformative use of Go in the sense required for fair use. Even if Boldly were somehow deemed even weakly transformative, defendants were not justified in copying so many and so much of Dr. Seuss's highly imaginative illustrations under the third factor. The court in Manji illustrated that mode of analysis when it said, even though the defendant's use was not transformative, even if we were to assume it was mildly transformative, defendants still fail the third factor because they did not need to use as much of the plaintiff's copyrighted photographs as they did to achieve their asserted news reporting purpose. Likewise, Manji did the same thing on the fourth factor in saying that even if there were some transformative use here, the evidence that the defendant's use would serve the same substitutionary market function as plaintiff's original and the market for the plaintiff's derivatives, the fourth factor weighs in favor of the copyright owner, even if you were going to assume some mildly transformative use. No such transformative use is present here. Your Honor, because all four... On the transformative use question, as you know, the courts have struggled with this and the Supreme Court has told us there's no bright line. We need to look case by case. There are some other cases such as Cariou and the Blanche v. Coons that found transformation on a fairly low threshold. How does Dr. Seuss overcome those cases? Your Honor, Cariou and Coons, first of all, are Second Circuit cases that even have been recognized within the Second Circuit as being aggressively expanding the outer bounds of transformative use. DSE's view is that those cases are probably ultimately inconsistent with Campbell, but even when analyzed under their own terms, what the Supreme Court said in Campbell is that when you have a work like Boldly that does not in any way criticize or comment on the substance or style of the original, then the claim of fairness, it diminishes accordingly, if not vanishes entirely, and then other factors such as the extent of the work's commerciality loom larger. I think one can fit the appropriation art cases like Cariou and Coons or this Court's decision in Seltzer into that framework to say that even though there was no comment on or criticism of the substance or style of the original, there's not a bright line rule that those uses cannot be fair, but those types of uses are going to be at a significant disadvantage because of their lack of any bearing on the substance or style of the original. So in this Court's decision in Seltzer v. Green Day, how was the defendant able to overcome that? The defendants were able to overcome that based on facts that are the exact opposite of what we have in this case. For one thing, Green Day was using Seltzer's scream icon illustration to communicate a completely different message. 
unrelated from the original. The original photo, the plaintiff said, was an expression of Los Angeles outsider skateboarding culture. Green Day used the Scream icon as part of a video montage in a concert backdrop for the song East Jesus Nowhere, which communicated a strongly anti-religious message. And the Scream icon had a red cross spray painted over it, and images of Jesus Christ appeared and were defaced repeatedly throughout the video. So the message was completely different. Second, unlike Boldly's wholly and purely commercial purpose here, Green Day's use of the Scream icon was only incidentally commercial. The court found it very significant that Green Day only used it as one part of one video montage for one four-minute song in a three-hour concert and did not use the image to promote the concert, to sell albums, to sell merchandise, posters, or T-shirts, whereas here, Boldly is using Dr. Seuss's original expression to try to sell the exact same type of product with the same do you want to reserve? Do you want to reserve your remaining time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Thank you, and good morning. Thank you. Dan Booth for the Appellees. May it please the Court, you won't be surprised to learn that we have a different view. Oh, the Places You'll Boldly Go is a creative, expressive work that poses no cognizable harm to Dr. Seuss Enterprises. It is a thoroughly transformative use, reasonable for its purposes, with no evidence of harm. And an expressive work, for that matter, with its use of any trademark protected by the First Amendment. So Dr. Seuss Enterprises cannot block its publication. Fair use matters to artists and the public because it gives them breathing room to create. Campbell tells us that the goal of copyright to promote science and the arts is generally furthered by transformative works, and that's exactly what we have here in the sense that Campbell envisions. Campbell tells us that it's a fair use, a transformative use, that is, if it adds something new with a further purpose or a different character, altering the first with new expression, new meaning, or message. And this court has similarly held in Seltzer that a fair use, a transformative use, can qualify as a fair use when it uses the original as raw material in the creation of new information, new aesthetics, new insights, and new understandings. I'm having some trouble understanding your argument of how this is a parody. If we look at Campbell and its definition of mimicking and critiquing the original, or you go to the SunTrust case where the wind done gone versus the gone with the wind was a true parody, I don't understand the argument of how this falls within a parody. Well, there are several respects. First, unlike the SunTrust case, we don't have a book that is heavy on text. We have a book that is heavy on illustration. And so to retain the Dr. Seuss format and still convey the parody, it's much more implicit through the illustrations than it is through the text. That said, there is a thoroughgoing, implicit, transformative, parodic character to the book. The book is constantly pointing out the individualistic and narcissistic character of Oh, the Places You'll Go, 
a book that was Dr. Seuss's best-selling book and that uncharacteristic for him uh, took one hero character and sent him on a journey that was not uh, in any way supported by others. The Star Trek Enterprise and the Star Trek crew is a team effort. That's the theme of Star Trek, and it's a universalist theme as opposed to aspiring for the goals of one individual. Star Trek and boldly, as a result, take on a different approach and shoot for a different ideal, an ideal of universalism, of group support, of communion rather than individuality. And, and so that's the undercurrent and the difference that's implicit in uh, boldly. Now, the, the parody is there, and more important, there's also a mashup there. This is a parody mashup. It's both at once. On the one hand, it's a, a parody, a double parody of Seuss and Star Trek, but on the other, it's a mashup, and that is an innovative form that uh, combines two ele elements from two different sources and puts them in dialogue with one another. That's exactly what is being done here. And the test should be the same for a parody. It's the same sort of creative use of another work that serves a different purpose. The, what's foregrounded in a parody uh, is the joke about the subject. What's foregrounded in a mashup is not just that, but the relationship between the source works. And so creatively, these, the Appleese have done exactly that with Baudley, and they've uh, put into highlight both the similarities that underpin all the places you'll go and Star Trek, some aspects of it, but more importantly, focus on the differences that the Star Trek well, you know, you, universalism. That, that seems to me to be to some degree an after-the-fact justification of why they chose Dr. Seuss. If you go back in the record and, and the creators of Bowley are looking about, well, what should they use and how should they copy it slavishly and that sort of thing, at what point do they decide, well, let's go with Go? Uh, the the first day, I believe, or the second that they came up with the idea, uh, Mr. Gerald suggested, let's do a Star Trek primer to the publisher, to Glenn Hammond. He thought about it and said it makes sense if we're, may make more sense if we're doing a parody of two things. Uh, that day, the next day, they were talking about, oh, the places you'll go. And they were talking about Dr. Seuss. So uh, the idea of parodying Dr. Seuss was from the very outset of this project and was always uh, within consideration, or at least after a few hours. And as it developed, that was the only thing that they were interested in. And so the key was how to focus on Dr. Seuss and the elements from Go primarily, but other books as well, and combine them in a way that called enough attention to the originals so that it was clear what they were doing. That's inherent in a parody and inherent in a mashup if you aren't using those source materials, then you aren't doing a parody. You aren't doing a mashup, as it, all of there, the defendants testified. You said they decided from the get-go to do a parody. Is there um, evidence in the record that they discussed the idea of doing a, a parody specifically? I thought that they were going to create uh, some sort of uh, primer that's based on a well-illustrated, well-known work, and then eventually the discussion was, okay, we're going to use the Dr. Zeus universe. Uh, they, it was not the, 
the very first email where the idea of a Star Trek primer, it was the response. It was, it may make more sense if we're doing a parody of two things. So there was a discussion specifically that we're doing a parody? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, That's when they the said parody, they also said, well, maybe those people in black robes would disagree with us. There was some reference to that, correct? That's true. That's true. They were quite tongue-in-cheek about that in the, uh, in the promotion on the Kickstarter campaign in which they marketed it as a parody mashup and said that this is a, a work of fair use, that it's done with love and affection for Dr. Seuss, but they made it very clear that their opinion was this was fair use, this was a parody, this was a transformative work. They've believed that throughout. They've said that throughout to each other in their emails as they were planning the book and uh, in their depositions before and after the court decided, well, the district court decided it didn't see it as a parody, but did see it as a mashup. The police see it both ways. It is a parody mashup. That's how they marketed it on Kickstarter, and that's what they see it as. The other question I had, you know, the district court seemed to take the position that if you take existing expression and then intersperse it with some new expression, that all of a sudden you have a transformative work. And that is a definition of transformative in fair use that I certainly haven't seen before. It would seem to me to stink the whole notion of copyright protection and almost everything would be fair use. Do you agree with the district court's characterization of transformative and that definition? The district court's characterization of fair use did seem appropriate. It's, I think, accurate to say that if you are using underlying materials and using them in a different way every time as thoroughly as the defendants did, as the appellees did, then you have transformed it. And so looking at each illustration, the court wound up deciding this is fair use. This is transformative. On the motion to dismiss, the court looked through all of the differences, all of the similarities, everything that Dr. Suzanne Enterprises was highlighting and said this is transformative and walked through one illustration in particular in detail and said this is not just the original. There's so much that's been changed here and this is characteristic of all of the book. Every page is changed. No illustration is copied line by line. No page is copied line by line. Every illustration is significantly and highly transformed. Well, didn't the district court, what concerns me is the district court confusing the word transform as we see it in the copyright statute and derivative works with the notion of transformative, which of course is not in the copyright statute, but is a judicially created add-on for the fair use. I think that I would appreciate your comments on why you think this is, is this a derivative work in your view or is it a transformative work or is it both? This is not a mere derivative work. It is a transformative work. The district court's view was that a work can be derivative and still transformative, that there's no inherent contradiction. This is not, however, a mere derivative. It's not a substitute for any 
Dr. Seuss Enterprise's work or any of their licensed derivatives. If someone was looking for a copy of Go, they wouldn't be satisfied if they came across a copy of Boldly. It's radically different. It doesn't serve the same purposes. It doesn't have the same messages. Certainly, there aren't Dr. Seuss Enterprise's licensed derivatives that make fun of Go. In order to have a derivative, it doesn't have to be in existence now because part of the purpose of the derivative section of the copyright statute is to preserve that option for the copyright holder and also to block somebody else from doing something that would qualify as a derivative. What is your best authority for saying because Dr. Seuss hasn't yet made a derivative that plays off of Star Trek that that somehow puts a point in your column? There's no rule that says that. There are facts that say that they aren't going to do it. The facts are that in their style guide, they tell all of their licensees, don't mix characters from our world with characters from another world. Don't use elements from Seuss with elements from other worlds. So it's exactly the sort of work that the athletes have done that they are trying to avoid. They've made exceptions, but as a general matter, they adhere to that pretty strongly. So the only examples that they've come up with of similar works are not mashups. They aren't works that take characters from one world and place them into another. They are examples of characters simply existing. It's all Seuss characters. They haven't licensed a book that doesn't involve Seuss characters at all. And that's what we have here. They haven't said that they intend to. And even if they did intend to, that doesn't mean that they have the exclusive right to control what would be essentially a fair use market for transformative works. If they want to make a transformative work, they're entitled to, but they haven't. If they want to license them, they're entitled to. But that doesn't mean that they can control the market and prevent others, prevent the many other people who might be interested in creating such works. Not that there are so many. We know of ourselves only. We also know that there has been no showing of harm. And so I wanted to talk about the burden shifting issue because the district court did find no showing of harm. If the burden belongs to Dr. Seuss, as it should, because this is a transformative work, and to be transformative, you don't have to be a parody. You don't have to be a mashup. You can be, as in Trasonia and as in Seltzer, you can simply be transforming without making any comment or criticism of the original, though this book certainly does. If you've got a transformative work, if you've got a fair use work, the burden should be on the plaintiff, who certainly knows more and has the resources. So what case do you cite for the idea that simply because it is transformative, if it is, that somehow the burden shifts to the plaintiff on the fourth factor? I looked for one, but I couldn't find one. There isn't one explicitly stating that, but this court has held in place. The problem comes in that if I look at Campbell and the fourth factor, and I look at who has the burden, 
it seems to me that's pretty important as to the fourth factor. What Campbell says about the burden is that it would be hard for the defendant to prove fair use if it can't show that the fourth factor favors it. And it is hard to show it if you don't have evidence in your favor on the fourth factor. We do have that evidence in this case. So even if that's not the burden-shifting rule, we have evidence that books have been on the market that, oh, the meetings you'll go to, for example, has been on the market for the last three years. Dr. Seuss Enterprises hasn't objected. And we have evidence that Who's Holiday, which was found to be a transformative fair use over Dr. Seuss's objections, has been on the market. Again, there's no showing of harm. Again, looking at the fourth factor, why wasn't it error for the district court to only consider the harm caused by the initial publication? The district court did not limit itself to that. The district court made clear that... Well, it seemed like it did. The district court... It didn't consider the potential market of unrestricted and widespread conduct. I believe the district court characterized that as the doomsday scenario and looked at that and said that that was simply a speculative harm that had been raised, that there wasn't evidence that there would be harm even if there were other latecomers, secondcomers. And so without that evidence, there's no basis to find this an unfair use. Well, going back to the procedural question raised by Judge Smith, you take the position that fair use is not an affirmative defense. And yet we have case law that says precisely the opposite, Perfect Ten, Monge, et cetera. If you are correct, fair use is not affirmative defense, then why wouldn't that apply to every factor and not just the fourth factor? Well, we have Lenz, certainly, which goes the other way and says that it's not simply an affirmative defense. Well, Lenz was a digital millennium copyright case, and they did say it's an affirmative defense in that case, did not? Lenz said that labeling fair use an affirmative defense that excuses conduct is a misnomer. So they took a different position. The statute, after all, calls fair use a right and simply says it is not an infringement of copyright. So requiring the plaintiff to show some evidence of harm from a fair use is proper. Otherwise, copyright owners can unduly hamper fair use or transformative use or free expression. And so Comic Mix or Matt Lombardo or other creators will be stymied in their efforts to build on the works that are out there, just as the Copyright Act is supposed to support. We've let you exceed your time because you've been making some very interesting arguments. So at this point, I'd like you to wrap up, if you would, please. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Mr. Panikowski. Your Honors, the Supreme Court in Campbell and this court in Penguin Books and all its other fair use precedents have rejected the nearly limitless view of transformative use that defendants have articulated today. A transformative use has to imbue the original work with a further purpose or a different character. If merely any alteration in expression were enough, this court could not have reached the decision it did in Penguin Books, where the defendant took the cat in the hat, 
mashed it up with the story of the O.J. Simpson murder trial and wrote a book that appropriated the Katz stovepipe hat in 13 different places, but had almost entirely new textual expression and extensively new illustrations. Yet the court didn't say that was transformative just because there was new expression or because it was a mashup. It looked to see, is there a further purpose or a different character? And the court correctly concluded, no. It is just being used to get attention or avoid the drudgery in working up something fresh, quoting the Supreme Court's decision in Campbell, and therefore rejected it as a transformative use. Penguin Books is by far and away the closest case factually to what we have here. And in fact, for reasons described in our briefs, this case represents an even stronger case for the copyright owner than Penguin Books, especially on the third factor, where defendants here appropriated far too much of Dr. Seuss's work. And on the fourth factor, where it's not just that the defendant didn't meet its burden, as was said in Penguin Books, but there's actually overwhelming evidence of actual and potential harm to the market for the original and the derivative from both boldly and widespread and unrestricted uses. Finally, Your Honors, this court in Lentz said, quote, regardless of how fair use is viewed, it is clear that the burden of proving fair use is always on the putative infringer. That is Lentz at pages 1152 to 53. Your Honors, all four copyright fair use factors weigh strongly in DSE's favor. Therefore, DSE asked this court to reverse the district court's grant of summary judgment of fair use and to order the entry of summary judgment of no fair use in favor of Dr. Seuss Enterprises. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Mr. Panikowski. Also, thank you, Mr. Booth, for appearing by video today. The case just argued Dr. Seuss Enterprises versus Comic Mix is submitted and the court is adjourned for this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. This court for this session stands adjourned.